Hi everyone, it's Parissa from CrossFit 168. Welcome to another episode of the 168 podcast. I'm absolutely excited for today's uh, episode. I'm here with Dr. Susie Green. Uh, Dr. Green, you are CEO and founder of the Positivity Institute. Uh, welcome. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here, Parisa. Thank you for your time. Uh, I know you're very busy. I, I quickly want to just do a bit of an intro on the Positive, Positivity Institute, um, talk a little bit about what you guys do there. Um, well, first of all, it's an organization that you work with schools and workplaces, giving people tools, I guess, and educating people on how to reach peak potential um, and performance. Um, and I feel like it's a, rather than being a reactive approach, um, it's, it's something more of a preventative approach and, you know, teaching people how to use positivity and gratitude, um, you know, to, to reach their full potential. Is that, does that sort of sum it up? Yeah, look, absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's not an either or because in the early part of my career, I worked, I still am a clinical psychologist, but I spent early part treating people with clinical disorders like clinical depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, yeah. bipolar disorder. And so the psychological skills that I learn and I continue to learn because it is a developing field, as we know, can absolutely be used to reduce mental illness, enhance mental health and psychological well-being. But after I finished my work in that clinical work, I did executive coaching um, and I still work as an executive coach. I just keep a handful of clients now. But what I discovered pretty early on, Carissa, is the same psychological skills that I was using in a, in a psychiatric clinic, if you like, yeah. I was using for peak performance with senior executives yeah. in major, you know, companies. So, but those same skills were just being used slightly different, differently, but absolutely for peak performance yeah. for them to be their best self. So I, and I have argued, and I've got a book that gives an overview of it, that there are key psychological capabilities that I learnt as a psychologist. I've absolutely applied to my life since I started learning in my 20s, have changed my life have helped me through my life yeah. I've used with hundreds of clients and uh, that so there are these skills that can be taught and can be learned and hopefully and increasingly we are seeing that happening in school so into the future um, kids will learn these skills at school rather than waiting until they get into the workplace and even historically you wouldn't have learned them unless you were in a leadership position yeah. and then you would have learned them as part of leadership development, if you were lucky, you know. Yeah. But uh, but the world is changing, and the pandemic's had a lot to do with that. So it is an exciting time to be in this field and to be the CEO of the Positivity Institute. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think now more than ever, there's so much uh, focus on mental health and mental illness. Obviously, with um, COVID globally, it's just affected everyone. Um, one of the things I think I, I, that I wanted to ask you about. During the lockdown, and we've just come out of our second lockdown here in Sydney, during lockdown there's, there was so much emphasis on, on mental health and the importance of mental well-being and looking after yourself. Do you think now that, I mean, when the restrictions ended, it was literally at, at midnight tonight, you can now go and do all of these things. Like with a click of a finger, it was you know, the restrictions ended or some of the restrictions ended. Do you think that there's a danger that as soon as 
you know, the lockdown is over, people are going to forget about the mental side of it. And what are the long lasting effects? You know, um, I think everyone I've spoken to definitely at the gym with our members, the effect on the mental health and the toll it's taken for people who, you know, even have never suffered any sort of mental illness, it really took a toll. And now to suddenly go, okay, everything's fine. You can go out and do what you want. What about the mental side of it? Exactly. Look, it's really interesting, isn't it, that it, it comes down to um, individual differences in terms of what situation or context you were in during the pandemic. And yeah. you probably heard this saying that people at the early stages were saying we're all in the same boat. Well, we're not all in the same boat. We're in the same storm. Yeah. We're in the same storm, but we've got different boats. Some of us are in cruise liners and others are in tinnies, yeah. if you like. Um, but also then there are individual differences, particularly around our personality, as to how quickly we, you know, the people that ran out at the strike of midnight and were out there partying, probably the extrovert. <laughs> yeah. um, but there, there's also a lot of people that have been saying, and I've seen a lot on social media, that there's quite a high degree of anxiety um, around you know, coming out of the cocoon and getting back out there. And I know even for myself coming out of our first lockdown here in Sydney, I was quite anxious myself. Now, I have a family history on my mother's side of anxiety. Okay. I probably would say I'm um, high-functioning. You know, I'm a high-functioning, anxious <laughs> person. And uh, in some ways it's worked really well for me, the, the anxiety, because it's driven me, you know, to do my best in many ways, but it mm-hmm. also really has um, not always a helpful impact. So I think, yeah, it's, a, it's an opportunity to reflect and I think that is the key key question here is are people actually taking time to stop and reflect around what's just happened, what they've just been through. Yeah. Um, and look, this for, and I listened to a great podcast by uh, a leading academic in the field of resilience. So he's dedicated his whole life. He's at Columbia, uh, George Bonanno, his name is. And um, he said, that it's important not to forget that the research, and he's talking about not just one or two studies, significant amounts of research says the majority of people that go through traumatic experiences or stressful experiences are actually resilient. Like the majority yeah. of us are resilient. Yeah. Absolutely there are a smaller proportion proportion that may go on to develop a post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly if it's been a really traumatic experience. Sure. But I think, you know, most of us are resilient. Um, so that's probably a, a good point. But I do think that there, you're right, there may be um, a tendency, I don't know if it's a tendency or it may happen that it's like, oh, you know, we just revert too quickly to normal and we don't stop and reflect and think about how did I go through that experience and maybe it was I did well or maybe it was it actually brought a few things to the surface. Mm. You've probably heard this term that's happening in business now around, they're calling it the great resignation or the great migration. So there's there's this concern a lot of people are going to leave their, their jobs. Um, I read about this yesterday. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? What was your take on the, on the article? I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I've, I've, I come from a corporate background, so I did 10 years of uh, accounting before I, and then I quit and went into the fitness industry. But I read it and thought it was quite fascinating that um, for me it was kind of like a, or maybe people are having this wake-up call of 
am I happy doing what I'm doing? Maybe I, maybe I need a change. Maybe this is time for a change, which is what we were talking about just before offline. Absolutely. And I think that's what has happened for a lot of people. But I, I think let's not forget that perhaps that is a privilege to have those options and there are a lot of people that don't have those um, And I always try to stay mindful of that, knowing that I'm in, um, in a privileged, I guess, position of having had education. Yeah. I mean, I certainly didn't grow up. My family... Um, did have a lot of lot of money. You know, my parents, my dad was a truck driver, and so my mum was a, a, a home carer. Mm. But um, yeah, I left school at sixteen. You know, but I I had the opportunity and the privilege to go back as a mature age student. And education has changed my life. There's no doubt about that. But um, not everyone has, has those privileges or those options. But uh, for people that do have options, um, I think yeah, they're really questioning is this what I, I want to be doing but I, I guess I worry for issues like what do they think they're going to do firstly do they I, I have a concern particularly for the younger generation where everyone is an entrepreneur yeah. or wants to be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and you will know as a, as a business owner a small business owner and as I do it's really I have got concerns People that think, oh, I'll do a, you know, I'll do a startup, and look, I'm not in any way saying don't follow your dreams because I'm absolutely of that, um, you know, mindset. But I'd say do your homework. Yes. Uh, in in coaching and coaching psychology, we draw on a psychological theory called hope theory, and hope theory um, looks at our goals, and ideally those goals need to be personally meaningful. So that means goals that are aligned to my core values, the things that matter most to me, yep. the goals that I want to do, not not that I'm doing for my partner or my parents or my doctor or whatever. Yep. They're my goals. So that's the first component. The second component is a sense of agency, so a sense of belief that I can achieve my goals. Yep. And as you know, it's not often that people don't have the capabilities. It's their mindset that gets in their way of achieving their goals. And then the third part of hope theory is pathways. And we know that high hopers, the people that are high on hope, have multiple pathways. So when they think about a goal, and hope is one of my top strengths, but when I think about goals, I immediately think about plan A, B, C, D, and E. And if this plan gets blocked, what will I do? You know, I'm always having backup right. plans. So um, so I think, you know, if you, if you are thinking three um, – rethinking your life and what you want to do um be a high hoper yeah. you know set some goals that are aligned to what matters most to you have a plan or plans of different strategies backup plans yeah. um do what's called defensive pessimism so i am a i'm a rose-colored optimist by nature for reason, <laughs> which has got me into a lot of trouble but it's also helped me be successful yeah. but i've had to learn to be and this is science uh, supporting this a defensive pessimist. So a defensive pessimist is someone that um, has to consciously look at their stretch goal, and particularly if it is a high-risk goal, consciously look at it and then look at what is the worst that could happen. Like what It's like a basic risk mitigation and then have backup plans. Whereas a pure rose-coloured optimist, which as I said I've been in my life, I wouldn't even think anything was going to go wrong. Yeah. I, you know, I would just go, yeah, I can do that. And just and go for said, it. Yeah, and as I've said, it's worked very well in many ways, but I've also had a couple of um, you know, tough <laughs> crashes 
through, through not being a defensive pessimist as well. Do you think that um, you've learned a lot from that though? Oh, hugely. <laughs> as I say to my clients, it's, it's not pleasant at the time, but at in time when you come out of it, you look back and you'll realise what strengths you developed and um, and then, and there's no science to this, but you'll find that people will come across your pathway that are going through something similar and you'll be able to you know, help them because you've been through that path as well. That's Absolutely. What I Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, I, I um, in the interview you did with Mark Boris, yes. um, you talked about, and, and this struck a chord with me and I found it, really fascinating where you talked about the importance of not suppressing emotions and 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 feelings that might be perceived as negative um because that can over time turn into things like depression and anxiety can you talk about that a little bit um and I guess from my point of view, where I'm coming from is you see so much on social media now about being positive and and the importance of being positive and grateful and there's somewhat a sense of guilt associated with um, feelings of negativity or that, you know, I shouldn't be feeling sad because I have a, you know, I have an amazing life. So then there's guilt for feeling that sadness. But, you know, I really found that interesting to not hold that in because it can lead to things down the track. Absolutely. And it's so, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, it, well, it's certainly not black and white, and um, I mean, none of us really like to feel those negative emotions. And look, I struggle with the labels of positive and negative yeah. because if you think about, say, the four major, four primary emotions being fear, sadness, anger, and happiness. I mean, there's been some research to show there's six, um, including shame and disgust. I think and anyone that's watched. Fabulous Inside Out Disney movie. We'll, we'll know they did a great job of it as well. But um, you know, even fear, um, when it's at its clinical extreme and becomes an anxiety disorder, well, that that is problematic. You know, and that interferes with functioning in your life. But we all want to have a certain level of of, uh, of fear or, or prudence, if you like, yep. because it'll help us from not you know harming ourselves or Correct. getting into trouble or whatever. We want to have a certain amount of anger so that we're assertive and we stand up, we have boundaries and we fight for injustices, but we don't want our anger to become rage, you know, and have yep. a detrimental effect on ourselves or others. Sadness. We absolutely want to have appropriate sadness when we lose someone, you know, if it's grief or any sort of loss. I'd be more worried if somebody wasn't sad going yeah. through that. But when it becomes clinical depression and you know, then goes to extreme, that's problematic. Happiness, even the same. You know, if you talk to anyone bipolar, you know, that elevated positive mood um, is also problematic as well. So the labels can be helpful um, in some ways, but just be mindful of them because, as yeah. I said, even negative emotions can be positive. But I was just talking to a client this morning about um, – uh, psychological emotional deprivation which uh, uh, I would say I would argue quite a few people probably have and that emerges out of a potential childhood okay, where um, you're, you weren't uh, free to express your emotions or your emotions were shut down if you expressed them as a child and, yeah. and I'm, I tell you Priest, I know you're a parent mm. I am 
the last person to be into parent blaming or bashing because I know how difficult a job it is and yeah. I think we need to cultivate compassion yeah. for parents and for our parents because I think generally, and I know not always, but generally try to do our, our best. But we weren't taught, we as parents, we weren't given a guidebook of how to handle your yours or your children's emotions. Yeah. Now we are, you know, now in the younger generations, my daughter's a new mum, there's great books out, um, happy to recommend one in particular for new parents, but um, schools are teaching, starting to teach these skills, parents are through the schools starting to learn these skills, yep. but historically, you know, it wasn't okay, you were told to pull your socks up, you know, particularly yeah. there were gender differences, really, boys weren't allowed to cry, yep. you know, yep. they were told to stuff those emotions down. And we do know psychologically that when you press or repress emotions, they don't go away. Yeah. You know, that they'll find a way out and they'll come out, as I said, either psychologically, but this will be a, a good one for your, uh, your audience that uh, you know, focus on physical, physical well-being because you've probably heard people say, oh, Carissa, I don't know what's wrong, you know, I've been working out, I've been eating well, been drinking my water. I still got sick, yeah. you know, and and we do know, um, particularly through a field called psychoneuroimmunology, that our emotions affect our physiology and our uh, can make us sick. Our yeah. emotions literally make us sick. So it really, yes, absolutely, invest in your physical health, diet, exercise. But if you don't address those emotional issues, you will likely still get physically sick. Yeah. You know? So. But um, I guess I'm here to encourage people to learn more about their emotions. There's great books out there um, to go and see a therapist if you are having problems, particularly with those emotions going to their critical extremes. Yep. Um, but, yeah, commit to learning more about your emotions and your psychology, I would say. It's going to be better for you physically and psychologically. 100%. I... I uh you know, there's a lot now about um, practicing gratitude um, and how much it helps with, you know, um, just it's life-changing. I've got friends that, that do it every day and I was talking to my best friend the other day who's really, she's she's huge on this and, you know, she's starting off with one or two things a day that she would write down that she was grateful for. And she said, you know, it was really hard initially. You would say, I'm grateful for my health and I'm grateful for my family. And now she's got a list of, you know, 19, 20 things that she can write down every single day. And it's so specific, like from how the coffee tasted in the morning to like just, and and the way she explained it was that it, it really has changed her life with things being so positive is this something that like one of the things that people can do if they want to make that change absolutely and i'm often asked you know out of all the particularly positive psychological interventions or strategies that have been studied if i had to recommend one or two what would they be to give the biggest impact in the shortest amount of time gratitude is absolutely one of those although there's a disclaimer on it parisa because if you're already a high grateful high on gratitude and you do it you won't get an extra boost to your well-being you you should already be benefiting from the elevated levels of psychological well-being if you're already high on gratitude but if you're someone that has been taking things or people for granted and that's 
again, I'm not blaming people. It's really easy to do because it's also a scientific phenomena called habituation where we habituate, and you probably would know this more parallels from physical, but you have to keep pushing. You've got to do more weights to, yes. you know, to get the effects. Yes. So our brain, because it, it, you know, it, it, it habituates because you don't want to be paying constant attention to everything in your environment. So it starts to just, it doesn't notice things as much. So we just look at, we're like, you know, we might have a beautiful view and we've been living in this beautiful apartment for a few years and we don't even notice it anymore. Yeah. We just have habituated to it. So unless you consciously stop and think, wow, how lucky am I to be living here when say the majority of the world do not do. have an experience like this, yeah. that counteracts habituation. So that conscious stopping and also with gratitude, it's really important that it's not just a better rights, my five things. To get the real effects, it's got to be heartfelt, yeah. which means you have to really feel it. Yeah. And really, and, and I think, like your friend said, that is a practice and um, it takes a little bit of time to get those feelings and also it's counteracting your negativity bias. So as you start to look for the things that you're grateful for and the things that are going well, you're, you become more mindful and you start to notice more things and that's why your list starts to grow as well. Yeah. So the second strategy, which I've just alluded to there, is mindfulness. So there are many um, ways to practice mindfulness. There are many approaches from many different religious traditions um, or non-religious traditions, but as a basic, at a, at a very foundational level, mindfulness allows us just to be more aware, to be more conscious of the taste of the coffee, yeah. of the person in front of me rather than you know multitasking and not really giving that person my, my, the gift of my attention. Yeah. So mindfulness, just like going, and I, I usually say this in my workshops, just like going to the gym and you're lifting weights, Every time you lift the weight, you're building your muscle. Mindfulness, every time you practice through a, through a dedicated practice, your mind wanders, you bring it back. Mind wanders, you bring it back. You're building up your mindfulness muscle just the same way. And this, would, I imagine, would be something that takes a lot of time, a lot of practice. It in- a lot of practice, but I've also found, and I think there is some accompanying research, um, so I'm not claiming to be an expert. It's a bit like exercise. In my mm-hmm. 20s, I used to stop, start. You know, I, as people do, they start a new program, they get all motivated, and then they stop. Yeah. And then about my 30s, I set a goal to run 5Ks. I was never a real runner. run 5Ks, do 20 um, laps of a pool, I think, with my other one. And those goals helped me work up to it. And then ever since then, I've sustained, I've wanted to sustain it. Yeah. So, you know, decades later, I've just been for a run this morning. I only do once a week now, but I do other, I'm going to the gym and whatever. Yeah. But um, so absolutely, it's recommended that you have a personal practice with mindfulness. Although the research says it can be fairly short, might even just be 10 minutes. Um, but if you simultaneously set an intention, so, uh, and it doesn't have to be a specific, goal but it could just be an intention that I want to be a more mindful person and, and mm-hmm. I know I did this for myself and just that intentionality together with practice re- I found really elevated 
um, my mindfulness much more quickly. And and what would you do? Would it be a, a daily thing where you start with 10 minutes a day and then you build up as you go? Look, if you're new to it, there's uh, many apps. The two that I recommend are um, one number one, Giant Mind, and that's an Australian guy, John, Johnny, I think. And the other one um, the Headspace Mindfulness app. Yep. They both have, from memory, at least a, a free version um, called Take 10 or a free 10-day. Yep. And One Giant Mind, I believe, has a free 30-day version. Now, it was the free 30-day version that actually got me to making it habitual. Wow. So, and he, he says on the, on the Mindfulness app, You'll find that about day 23, 24, um, if you can do it consecutively, yep. at about day, day 23, 24, you'll start to think, oh, I can't imagine not doing this now. And that's exactly what happened. And so, I mean, there are some days that I don't do it, but generally I'll do a 10-minute every morning. Yep. I, mean, I like an app. That's my preference. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of people like to do it in silence and do their own version of it, but yep. I prefer a, a guided one. But uh, it certainly is powerful because, it, as I said, it just raises your awareness so you're more mindful of um, what's coming out of your mouth, the impact of your words on the people in front of you. So I often say if everybody's mindfulness level went up one or two points, you'd have less accidents arguments on the planet yeah and it's such an important thing now as well I think with social media um I I received and I know um I'm conscious of the time but I just wanted to make a point which I really loved um when I first reached out to you I received an automated email that said you were offline and you'd be back on Wednesday um but you're offline working on the business and I hadn't, it seems like such a simple concept, but I hadn't seen it before and I thought it was just brilliant. Quickly tell me what, what's it, you know, what's that about? Well, as you know, again, with running a small business, it's, there's never an empty email box. Yeah. <laughs> never, we've gone beyond that, I think. Yeah. So it's constant prioritizing and I have just found in the last few years that it's really important me to step back and think more strategically, um, have a 10-year plan for the business, um, Yeah, because I think as you get older and you start to realise how much time that you want to want to work at this pace, yeah. I only really want to work at this pace for probably keep another 10 years max, but that sort of time frame is quite motivating too because I've got a clear vision where I want to go with it and I realise that I can't just be in the business. Yeah, I've got to manage my energy um, if I want to sustain that pace, and that means taking time offline. I often have uh, when I do have my monthly month day. Um, I try to anyway, um, or we have off sites um, as well. Really working on the business, but we always carve in you know, exercise. We usually have it by the by the sea, so I carve in wellness activities. And exercise is part of that because that absolutely helps us. Well, we know from a psychological perspective when you're experiencing positive emotions, which exercise and um, being in nature will do, it broadens our thinking. So on the flip side, when we're stressed, we're in fight, flight, freeze, our thinking narrows down. 
cannot be creative more should you want to in that scenario we need to you know survive yeah but to be strategic and creative we need to engage in activities that are going to boost our mood yeah. because the research says it broadens our visual perception we actually sleep more in the environment we're more creative we make better decisions so wow positivity doesn't just feel good it affects how we function and that's a, a key message that we try to take out to absolutely I could ask you a million more questions um, I, and I could keep talking and, and talk about everything, but I, I, I'm conscious of time and I know you've got an incredibly busy schedule. Um, so I just wanted to say a huge, huge thank you for your time uh, and I appreciate it. And if anyone would like to reach out um, to Dr. S- Dr. Susie Green, um, I will uh, tag the Positivity Institute. We'll put up the links um, on our socials and for the website. Um, hey, Parisa, look, I was going to say if anyone, if you get a number of questions, perhaps I can come back at uh, some point next year and we can address some of those questions. Would absolutely love to. Yeah. I would absolutely love to. I know I know there'll be a lot of our members who will really enjoy this one, so um, I would love to do a round two. Yeah. That would yeah, be that'd great. That would be great. Well, thank you for the work, wonderful work that you do. You're an inspiration as a, a young mum and a business owner. Thank you. We need those, uh, those inspirational role models out there in the world, so good on you. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Not a problem. Enjoy your afternoon. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into the 168 podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit subscribe and tune into uh, our socials and all your podcast channels so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks so much. See you next time.